people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. Also joining us is Ms. Jessica Shires. Hello. On this episode, we are looking at Jess Franco's 1973 film, A Virgin Among the Living Dead. It's the story of Christina, played by Christina Von Blanc, though that's not really her real name, a young woman who is summoned to her family's mansion after the suicide of her father. There we meet her very odd family. The film plays out somewhere between a dream and a nightmare, following its own pace and logic. And this episode is a request from our Patreon donor, Jessica. So Jessica, why this one? I picked this one mostly because a huge fan of the show. I've been listening to it. I started listening to it during the the pandemic and it got me through quite a lot of time. So I listened to a lot of episodes going going back pretty far. And one thing I had noticed is that there there wasn't a lot of coverage of Jess Franco, who is one of my favorite directors and has such a prolific body of work. I feel like there's so much to say there. I know I know you covered Venus and Furs a couple of years ago, which is great, which is, you know, one of, you know, a great one to discuss. But in sort of thinking about like what I like to talk about most and sort of share with people my sort of like passion and excitement for Virgin Among the Living Dead definitely topped the list. So it was kind of a natural choice to pick that one. 
I think it's a really personal film, Franco's. Uh, and there's just, there's a lot of stories behind the kind of versions that have come out. And um, I think it reflects some of Franco's best qualities as a director. It has a fantastic soundtrack. So I think it has a lot of things uh, to recommend it and to create a really interesting discussion. What's kind of your history with Franco? And when did you see this one amongst his body of work? Um, I've been watching just Franco films. I, I got sort of accidentally interest, introduced to his films about around the early 2000s. Vampiros Lesbos was the first one I saw. I think I picked it up randomly in like a Virgin Megastore on DVD and just thought, this looks cool. I'm going to check it out. And I was blown away and it sort of really like lit the flame for me right away. And at the time, there wasn't a ton of his stuff available on, on DVD. So, you know, you know, I had to hunt down some VHS tapes and, you know, look on the internet for things. So I'm a huge fan of his work and especially the period in which he worked with Soledad Miranda. So like I said, Vampires Lesbos was a big one for me. And then I knew he had gone on to work with, just to go back a little bit, Soledad Miranda was his sort of muse who died very tragically at a young age, just on the cusp of her sort of ascent to stardom in 1970. So this movie kind of comes on the heels of that. But I was sort of loved Soledad so much that I was kind of wary. Like, I'm like, ah, I don't know if I would like his stuff that didn't have Soledad in it. So I was very, this is like, you know, 20 years ago. But then I started watching the stuff from the 70s, the early 70s, and really kind of going, okay, like, I get, you know, not, you know, it's sort of his work kind of, you know, went through a, a transition. And, and there's still so much to love there. And there's so much of Franco's work and themes and great stuff there. And so I just sort of, it kind of sent me on like a second wave of like discovering Franco sort of like a few years later when more of it was available on DVD. And then I think it was around the time that this Kino Lorber Blu-ray came out, which was around, I think it was 2013, something like that. It was, it was around the time Franco died. And I watched, I remember watching it and I remember going, hmm, that's cool. Like, I like the soundtrack, you know, there's some interesting things here, but it, it really didn't affect me particularly profoundly. I went, okay, it was, it was good. And then, you know, I watched more Jess Franco. I went back to this film and then suddenly it all kind of clicked for me with this movie. And I was like, okay, wow, like there's really a lot here. And um, especially once I was able to like really dig into that particular Blu-ray and see the different versions and, and kind of understand like, okay, like, you know, I understand like why this is such a personal film for him. I understand more of the things he's talking about and what he was trying to do. And I appreciated it so much more. And I think with subsequent viewings, it really became for me like my favorite of his films because again, just because it crystallizes so much of his, his, his themes and motifs. And um, even though it doesn't have Soledad Miranda or even Lena Romay for that fact, for that matter, it's still just a, still re a really an amazing, amazing film. And Heather, how about you? What's kind of your history with Franco and, and where does this film fit in for you? Being into cinema is a journey unto of itself, but there are certain directors whose filmographies and works are a journey unto itself. And I think Franco is definitely a living, well, eternally living definition for us because, you know, with cinema, it's, you know, all artists are eternal. My first exposure to Franco was via my sweet 16 present to myself, which was Pete Toombs' Immoral, to Immoral Tales. Not Immoral Toombs, <laughs> Immoral Tales. And that's where I first read about Jess Franco and was immediately intrigued. Of course, that book was one of my like cult film Bibles 
It took me a few years, though, because certainly, especially for those of us in the U.S., was it was definitely a little harder to track down a lot of his stuff easily. Thank goodness. I think Anchor Bay was like the label that I first was able to access this stuff because that's how I got Succubus, which was my first one. And coincidentally, one of the very first professional film articles I ever did was on Succubus. I hope it's not on the internet anywhere because it's very green. It's, it's, it's a very, very green, green Heather. But I want to see more of his stuff. I've seen it. You know, I've seen a number of the Soledad stuff, Lena, unfortunately, Mary Cookie, uh, which maybe I need to revisit that. It's been years, but it was, that was a lot. <laughs> but the thing about Franco, and I think with this film, and this film was a, a more recent watch for me. I was so like, in fact, when this episode came up, I'm like, this is the great impetus to push me to watch it because I've always wanted to, but. And I'm sure you guys, we all as film people have like our list of like films we want to get to. And then you have that pile and that pile is like almost like (laughs) insurmountable. But And this film has like everything I love about the Franco films I've seen. Like it's, you know, it's haunting. There's some unforgettable imagery. There's a little bit of demented humor, too. His, even though I call, and, and I know we'll get to Roland later in the episode, I mean, Roland's work is dreamy, but they're so different. And Franco, he's got this, like, f- like fluidity of chaos, if that makes any sense. Like, I know he was a big jazz guy. And to me, like, the best jazz music has that. Like, it's, you know, chaos, but it's controlled. The captain of the ship is, you know, you're in good hands, but it's going to be some weird ass waters we're about to sail into man i love that i mean and franco is that to a t so this was so great and also real quick when you mentioned solid dead miranda i completely what a presence i completely see why like you like oh i don't know if i want to watch anything because she like the perfect quote to anybody listening who hasn't seen anything with solid dead miranda christopher lee who worked with her on el conde dracula with jess said like when he there's scene where he goes to bite her like he literally felt like a shiver like she was so like just charismatic christopher lee said that i mean if that doesn't tell anybody what they need to know then i can't help you because holy shit <laughs> the the man's only like a, re- a relative of charlemagne come on yeah i mean she had an absolutely incredible like unforgettable presence i think anyone even if you don't get the Franco bug right away. I think if you just see her, like she has such a, she's just so magnetic. And, and I think, I think that was really like the work of Franco that really brought that out of her. I mean, he often describes her as kind of like, you know, Oh, she was just kind of like, you know, this like young woman, she wasn't really intellectual, you know, but I mean, you get like, he managed to like pull this, you know, these performances out of her where she's just this dark sort of spectral figure with these haunting eyes and this long hair. I always compare her to like, you know, sort of icons like Mako Kaji and, you know, like Christina Lindbergh and like Thriller. Like she has that sort of like, just sort of these eyes and like this presence that just, you know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter whether or not you like the film, you can't help but appreciate the the performance that that she gives. I think that's one of Franco's like superpowers too with this casting is a lot of the, and we see that certainly here is that 
everybody, you know, even, you know, it's not just a matter of like, oh, here's some pretty people that are going to get naked or, you know, whatever. It's like, these are like, every single person's really interesting. And, you know, very like, each one has their own sort of like orbital pull about them as actors. Even if some of them aren't necessarily like the most trained or experienced actors, it doesn't really matter. They're perfectly like, they're the perfect puzzle piece in this film. Yeah, I think he just had a had a way with faces. I think he just he just he was able to, you know, sort of identify someone who like you would look good in a film, you have a presence. Like he was able to identify that quality in his I think, you know, some of those actors, but I think mostly like his actresses who may you may see in other things and, and see in other things and go, Oh yeah, they were kind of whatever, but if they're in a Franco film, they're amazing. Yeah, I wish I could capture the energy and performance of the guy who ends up being the doctor who's also staring at her while she's skinny dipping just especially the way he holds his hand he's just like and the eyes (laughs) he has these huge popping eyes i will admit i'm i'm very much a novice when it comes to franco because kind of like to your point earlier heather as far as how difficult these films were to find video search miami was like the place to find these movies before we started recording we were talking about how Franco had directed like over 200 films. And so as you're going through the video search of Miami catalog, they have so many of those, but they also say this was directed by Franco under this name, but then they also would have Joe D'Amato and Joe D'Amato also would direct all of these things under different names. And then he has Jean Roland and Jean Roland had so many films as well. So in my mind, I had confused D'Amato, Roland, and Franco. So just Joe and John. And it took me so long to figure out who was who. And like, I know I had rented Vampiros Lesbos because I was a huge fan of that soundtrack that was put out. It really kicked off this whole movement of soundtrack reissues on CD. So you had the School Maiden Report and all of these different great, great soundtracks that were out there. And I watched the movie. I was way too young to kind of get it and then i know i saw fascination i think or at least living dead girl the roland film and i'm like is this the same as that guy and both seem to have a lot to do with like vampires and stuff and so i was so completely confused and now only in my you know fifth decade am i able to start unrolling this huge ball of yarn of these directors that really have nothing to do with each other but then you come to this movie and it does have stuff to do with both Roland and Franco, but yeah, we'll definitely talk about that later. So the the version I saw, because we will talk about different versions of this movie, the version I saw, I think is as close to the Franco vision as you get, which is, I know, I think the English dubbed one is pretty good as well. This I watched, it was French dubbed with English subtitles. It was under the title Christine, uh, Princess of, what was it? Eroticism. Eroticism. Yeah. And there's like one little extra bit inside of here where there's a sex scene with, it kind of looks like it's Uncle Frank and Carmendy. Carmenze. Uh, Carmenze. Carmen <laughs> oh, I love Carmenze. I can't Carmenze <laughs> is amazing. All of these her. characters are amazing. <laughs> I have to thank you before we even start really talking about this movie. I have to thank you, Jessica, because I really loved this movie. I think you might have seen in my notes, where's this movie been all my life? Because <laughs> yeah. I was just entranced and 
I'm kind of glad that we delayed this episode a little bit because I've now been able to watch it multiple, multiple times and I'm not getting tired of it. I just love it every time I see it even more. And I tried to watch the other versions and that's pretty rough, but the one that I saw, I love. Yeah. I think if, I think if you see that version, I believe I know the version that you mean. I really think like, you know, that's that it is as close to Franco's original vision for the film as, as, um, as it gets. And, you know, this movie, like, like uh, several others, you know, get just basically like he made them and then, you know, it basically got taken out of his hands and tampered with and interfered with and re-edited and things added to it. And, you know, he, you know, he had no control over it. And, you know, sort of, and then what goes on, like in the legacy of the film is like this sort of version that he never intended. And so to finally, you know, I think when it was that this finally like landed in that Christina Princess of Eroticism version on, I think it was, I think it was a French DVD maybe. And then people could really finally see it for what Franco intended it to be. I think we really begin to see like the, dare I say, genius of it and, and how good it really is and, and how talented Franco was as a filmmaker. I think, you know, once you, once you see this like sort of integral version as it was meant to be, that's when it really like, you know, you, you, again, I think you, you, if you don't already get it, you, I think you get it. What's like people are obsessed with putting together the longest version of this movie they possibly can. And I did see one that was at least 15 minutes longer, but you don't want that. If anything, you want the shortest version that you can possibly find because it's so much closer to what the original vision was. And that is so much more cohesive. And by putting in unnecessary sex scenes, I mean, Hey, I'm all for sex scenes, but the sex scenes that they added in, frankly, very boring as well, or throwing in zombie stuff. I'm like, I don't need that. The living dead of this movie, the virgin who's amongst the living dead, it is her crazy family and maybe the the queen of darkness and her father and just all of these people that haunt the chateau. And we've seen this kind of story before this young girl who goes to visit her family we find out that everybody in the house is basically ghosts or spirits of some kind. Okay, that's a pretty simple thing, but then you start to add all these extra layers onto it. Like, is she really in this house? Is she actually in, in an asylum someplace being observed? Because we have characters that kind of come in and out of this that, I mean, when she, one of the earliest scenes that we have when she's at this hotel, quote unquote, and she wakes up at one point. She's like, oh, I had these terrible nightmares. And there's obviously a nurse sitting in this hotel, quote unquote. And it's like, okay, this is kind of neat. And they're not making a big deal about it. This is way more subtle than something like Shutter Island, which just beats you over the head. Like from, from the trailer, I was like, oh, well, it's obvious that everybody here is ghosts. You know, like there's nothing, there's no mystery at all. I just solved it in the trailer. Whereas with this, I was like, this is keeping me guessing. I'm not exactly sure what's going on. And it kind of lives by its own logic. And I love how often we see Christine sleeping and waking up and you just never know, like, is she still asleep? Is she not? Is she even alive? Is she a ghost? And the rest of the people are real. Like, I I'm open to any interpretation of this. If you're just looking at it from like a very basic bare bones plot, I mean, it's like, it's basically a gothic story you know it's like it's a, a girl goes to a, you know haunted mansion and there's ghosts there and then you just sort of take that basic narrative and then layer all this like very like esoteric 
surrealist imagery on top of it and like you just like it's like everything you know it's like that's for me that's like christmas you know oh yeah <laughs> so it's got it's got it's got everything so i mean but yeah i think at its core i mean it's really we've seen this this is a kind of story that we've seen many times you know it's it's you know uh, someone goes to a haunted house and you know they're sort of occult experiences you know strange experiences there um and then you add into it the virginity aspect and she's kind of protecting her virtue and is it going to get taken away? What will happen? Is she going to get raped by ghosts or creeps that are out in the woods? And I love that the creeps that are out in the woods will show back up in other aspects of this. So it's very, you know, Oh, you were there and you were there and you were there kind of, you know, wizard of Oz type ending, but they are, they're total creeps. I mean, the lawyer uh, who we see with that bright red coat at one point, And then before we started well, just earlier, I'm sorry, I mentioned that doctor and just how amazing he is that he's creeping on her. And then when he shows up back later on that he's this doctor and he has that same lascivious look on his face. But then you also, you mentioned the score and the score is freaking incredible from the very first notes that we hear, which really puts you on edge all the way through this thing. And I wasn't sure at first that this was Nikolai doing the score. Obviously, I saw the credit that it was him, but that he's using the same singer that Morricone would use through so many things like Once Upon a Time in the West. Yep, at a Dolores. I love that. Oh, it's beautiful, beautiful music. I think it's one of Nikolai's best, and it's one of the best to appear in a Franco film. And, and Nikolai and Franco work together few times especially like from the sort of late 60s through the sort of early 70s there's a couple of really really fantastic scores for films that, that Nikolai did and I think Nikolai and and Franco really had a a kind of like they understood each other I think and because Franco and again I think we talked about this a little bit earlier you know Franco himself was a musician had an interest in a uh, big interest in jazz in particular but I mean he was a well-trained musician and appreciator of music. So I think he and Nikolai got along like a house on fire. And in this particular film, and I don't think this is the case with every score that Nikolai did for Franco, um, Franco actually worked with Nikolai on this. And if you'll notice in the opening credits, it actually credits Nikolai not only as music, but as like special sounds or, or sound effects or something like this. But what happened was Apparently, Franco had an apartment in Rome near Nikolai's, either Nikolai's apartment or Nikolai's studio. And so he would actually go in with him in the studio and they would work together. And a lot of the sort of like weird, um, you know, sort of no weird piano sounds and like the sort of bird noises and a lot of the sort of really, really weird stuff comes from Franco, interestingly enough. So he was he was very, very involved in the, the soundtrack as well, which I again, I love. And again, sort of reiterates the, that this is a really personal film for Franco because he was so involved in like every aspect. For me, when I think of like the great ma like maestros of Italian scoring or, you know, I always think of him. And part of that is, you know, Mike, when you mentioned earlier about the, you know, we had that great sort of, you know, sort of renaissance of getting a lot of like cult film soundtracks on CD. There was this amazing compilation called Beat at Chinchetta. Oh, I had that one. Oh, my gosh. And that was... Oh my gosh. And I mean, it's out, it's, I think it's long out of print, but you can, you can listen to it on YouTube. So we're so lucky to live in a lot of ways in the era we do, because it is so, things are so much more accessible. Like Mike, you mentioned video search in Miami. Didn't those tapes cost like 20 bucks? Oh my gosh. I never ordered from, but I would get the catalogs because on it, I mean, I was under 18. So I was like, 
<laughs> but I would just look through, look through and study them. And I was always fascinated because it'd be like, you'd have not only different, like, you know, pseudonyms for directors, but it'd be like, you know, dubbed in German with Portuguese subtitles <laughs> or something like that. I mean, we, we, you know, we live truly in a golden age of having a, so much more access to these, these films and the music. And with, with Nikolai, I think, and I think it was in one of the supplements you shared with us. I think it was you, Jessica, it was either you or Mike, that when Franco was talking about, it, he's alluded to, Nikolai using crystals with his piano work with this. And he didn't elaborate on that, but I was like, I was picturing like Space Godzilla as a piano or something. Like, it's just like, what was that like? It's just, but I love, I love that kind of musical esoterica and what, I mean, what a perfect film to apply that to. And I love that Franco shows up in his own films. Like you mentioned, that I covered Venus and Furs a few years ago. And I just remember he had a really small cameo in there as one of the jazz musicians is playing at a club, as opposed to this, where he has a pretty sizable role, though I love that they cast him as a, I guess, a mute, but he just makes all these crazy noises through the whole He's thing. just nonverbal, basically. Oh, I, think. <laughs> I love it. Basilio, right, is his name? Basilio, and, yeah. And just from the moment he shows up, and then every time he's on screen, especially when he brings her, like, the chicken head, and he's just like, eh, I'm like, oh my god, this is amazing. He just reveled in the, the like, sheer sort of absurd comedy of, of this role. And you love it, because you really just, you see a lot of the joy that Franco had. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, stuff in here that's that's quite dark. And, you know, we, I'm sure we'll talk about it. We talk more about the plot. But, you know, you know, Franco, I think at this point in his career was in kind of a sort of a dark period. Like, you know, he was still only just about a year after having lost Soledad. I think he was a little bit directionless. And to see him sort of work through a lot of, I think, the emotion and 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 then by, you know, taking the role of Basilio and just kind of like, again, like just sort of reveling in the, the comedy of it. And just going for it, like, you know, I think that's one of the, you know, sort of a positive sign of him sort of starting to come around again. So, you know, loving films and finding his niche and things like this. Um, and yeah, I just think he's like this sort of pin, you know, sort of center point of like bizarre comedy in the film. And it's it's so important because it just provides this sort of, you know, I think without that, have sort of this like ultra seriousness and it would almost I think you'd wonder if it took itself too seriously, but because you have this this comic streak that runs through it, mostly through this character, gives it a whole new dimension that is just really interesting and really just kind of really makes it like a, a fully fleshed, you know, Franco vision. And the way that he handles the comedy, because usually like mixing com- comedic elements and horror is dicey. It's tricky. It's very tricky. And, you know, especially when the horror is still the predominant. But the way he does it, just it just adds like a whole other just patina of of odd. And again, with that oddness lending to like, you know, what realm are we in? And, and it's perfect. It's so perfect. And some of the absurdism that comes up, too, I, I love, especially the uh, the funeral proceedings. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> the Latin chants. <laughs> yeah. The, Good stuff. Uh, Latin and nonsense, basically. You know, we start the movie from a moving car and we're going around these roads and you have a real circular feel to it. And it almost feels like we're going down a drain and you get that same feeling again once she shows up and uh, Basilio takes her to the 
the mansion that she's supposed to go to. We don't ever, I don't think we ever see the driver. He's in the back. Basilio's in the back with her and she's doing this voiceover, this very purple prose type of voiceover and talking about how strange everything feels and that it's only like vultures that are hanging out by the, the mansion. It's not, you know, any of the songbirds. And again, they're going around in circles and it just feels like she's traveling almost to hell with this. And Yeah, there's a definite like descent into a valley kind of a feeling. And I think she refers to like, I think it's, I think she's like birds of like, I, I keep hearing birds of prey and oh, you know, oh, come on. How is that possible? Like she, she almost like just sort of, you know, brushes off that like, oh, well, how can this be dark? You know, she sort of like completely like negates any idea that this could be a bad situation, even though she, she can see she has kind of like that trickling in, but she's kind of like, no, this is going to be fine. You know? She says, I feel like I'm in a strange dream. And you're like, yeah, this, this is, so far is all a very strange dream. I also like that when she did wake up earlier and, and come down and say, Oh, I had these nightmares. We never see the nightmares. And I really appreciate that because I think we are seeing the nightmares. I think what we're experiencing are her nightmares. We don't have to cut away to her having nightmares and show these dream sequences. I think that's what Franco is showing us. And thank goodness we don't get her shooting up in bed and, you know, with her eyes all wide, like Jimmy Stewart from Vertigo. It's like, no, she just, she's experiencing this nightmare. It's almost a waking nightmare at all times. I think a lot of American films, especially like more modern ones, when they kind of do that, whether it's unreliable narration or, you know, is it, you know, I see dead people or whatever, you know, it almost seems, do you feel like the difference between that and something like this is that I think sometimes maybe in certain, especially like mainstream cinema, it almost feels not, I don't want to say gimmicky, but kind of, you know what I mean? Like it's a little bit like more to quote Henry Chanasky, like obviousness. And whereas you know, with Franco, and I just think in general, like something I treasure the most about about everything I've seen of his, even Mary Cookie, I need to revisit it, whatever. But is that there's such a, like, almost like a childlike commitment to the sense of the fantastique. Like, oh, it, it's not, and it's like, doesn't have the night, necessarily, it's not naive, but it's just like, it's so open to the process and open to creating a world um and with that, there's, you know, I think it's just in a way, like, to me, like, we're respectful in a weird way, like, as an audience person, because it's not like, he's not hoodwinking us, you know, like, there's not a sense. And I mean, as much as I love old school carnies, <laughs> but I, but I, I equally love the sense of like, this is a fairy tale. And we're all kids. It's like, he's a fellow kid that's a little older, that's, you know, we're all huddled under a blanket, you know, with a candle. And it's like, we're going to hear and be a part of this, like, creepy story. And it's got that sort of things about child narration that doesn't always make sense. Even though this obviously very much in a, like a film for adults, I love that that wonder is there. And I don't know, it's like, it's, I think there are American horror films that definitely have that. But when I think of the ones that have that, they're older and they're more independent. I'm trying to remember what I was looking at that said something like it was in another language. That's why I can't remember it exactly, but it was making comparison between this film and something that would have been done by Marco Ferreri or, Oh wow. Or Louis Bunuel. And I'm yeah. Like, okay, yeah. Definitely Bunuelian in there. Yeah. Very, yeah. very Bunuelian. And then I was also thinking while I was watching this, I was reminded of Louis Maul's black moon 
it's also kind of like a little bit of a kid's story and you have a bunch of children in there and just it lives by its own logic and this has its own logic as well. But I like that he's not setting up all these rules like, well, if she goes into this room, she's going to see this. There is so much looking and spying and seeing things that she probably doesn't want to see and also, you know, smacking away the phallic and all this with that amazing shot of that huge black cock on the floor <laughs> that smacks away. At first, I thought I was dreaming when I saw that image. I was just like, "Am I? is this what I'm seeing here? Oh, okay. All right. But yeah, I mean, once we get to the house, she gets introduced to more of her creepy, crazy family. Maybe, I don't know, like Carmen Z, I think they call her a cousin or they just say she's part of the family. And that's it. Yeah. Like, we don't really vague. know. Yeah. But Uncle Howard, oh, goodness. Yes. He is great. He just looks lascivious. And I love that he's just playing the piano, not giving a fuck about anything. Oh, yeah, you're Hermione, your aunt is, she's not doing too well upstairs. Yeah, she's she's probably dying. She's like, (laughs) do you want to hear a waltz? In In my mind, Franco just said to Howard Vernon, like, just be yourself. Like, in my mind, like, this is how Howard Vernon was in real life. Just like, you know, just like, cool guy, happy-go-lucky, you know, kind of chill, you know, was a croupier in a past existence, you know, just floats around to, you know, casinos playing piano. And um, Howard Vernon, obviously a great actor, so not not to diminish his his talent. But, you know, I sort of, I, I just get a vibe of like, you know, Franco just kind of let Howard Vernon do his thing. Oh, 100%. I was so happy. I Howard Vernon's one of those guys. I always smile when I see him. Like he is to me like just one of those like sort of Euro cult treasure actors and you know has that great face. And yeah, I mean, you both nailed it. He's 100% like if you got invited to a 70s occult themed swingers party, as I'm sure we all think about in our spare time. I know I do. He's the one you want to see. He's the guy where you're like, "Okay." Like that <laughs> I'm sure wherever he is in the afterlife, he's happy to hear. And yeah, he's, and he's so, I mean, gosh, I love the whole cast, but no, he, he's great. And probably the most, um, probably like seasoned of the cast too. You know, and definitely. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. Going certainly, I mean, even with Franco alone, you know, that's dating back to, you know, the early sixties. Because since we're all sort of equally fangirling over Carmen. Carmen Zay. Carmen Zay. Yeah. Oh my gosh. She's so beautiful. Like impossibly beautiful. Britt Nichols was her, obviously not her real name. Uh, and, and again, I think this is sort of going back to like almost like a Soledad Miranda kind of like just electricity on screen. Like just almost like you cannot take your eyes off her, even though she's in like this really small role that's, you know, you know, part of this ensemble cast. Like she just, every time she's on screen, like you look at her, you know, she's, she's amazing. Apparently, I don't know if you guys know this anecdote, but you know she she was in a couple of Franco films. Uh, she was also in the first uh, Tombs of the Blind Dead movie in like a small role. What happened is she ended up marrying this like famous uh, Argentinian soccer player and moving to Argentina, and you know she kind of just dropped out of acting. So like after she was in like this sort of like flurry of Franco roles, she she didn't really appear in anything else. But my understanding is that Roman Polanski saw her either I don't know what movies are and if it was. Tombs of the Blind Dead or one of the Franco films, but he tried to get like 
her phone number basically from from Franco because he wanted her to star. I think I, I don't know if this is this is true, but I've heard anecdotally that the film that he wanted her for was was what. That makes sense. Yeah. But basically her husband was just like, nope, she's married to me now or she's not doing those kinds of films anymore. So um, that's why her career is sort of very short and Franco centric because she got married and she's, she's still alive. She, she, I think she has talk shows in, in Argentina. And I actually, I, a couple of years ago, I, I just was Googling her and like wanted to see like, you know, what does she do now? And you can find on YouTube videos of what she like. She, I mean, I don't know if it's plastic surgery. I don't know if it's genetics. She is still as beautiful as she was in the early seventies. It is amazing. So yeah, she's. Well, not to say that Christine Von Blanc is any slouch either. And they definitely give us a lot of close-ups of her with these wide eyes. And I love that kind of seventies eye makeup that she's wearing. She does a really good job of, not being annoying as this character, because this character could just be screaming and carrying on and all this. There's there's one part fairly early when she's at the mansion where she walks into a room and there's a, I guess it's a vase on a table, but it looks like a human head. And she screams and backs out of the room. But then she just walks back into the room again. And I was just like, okay, well, that's good. At least it's not like this screaming, oh my God, what's going on? And like, Uncle Howard, come on, like, help me out. Like, she's very self-possessed. And I like that she's like, ah, I'm going to go for a walk now. I'm going to leave the chateau. Like when she meets with people, she's like, oh yeah, my family's up there. Oh, there's nobody that lives there. Yeah, my family lives up there. And she's not like a typical, like screaming Mimi type of character. She's pretty interesting to watch and i really feel for her because she is such an interesting character the doctor character at the beginning when she's in the hotel slash what we later learn is actually a hospital or when she's sitting down talking to the doctor and explaining you know yeah I, you know i have to go see my relatives but i heard there's no no one lives there so i'm kind of scared i don't know what to do and and the doctor tells her i'm trying to find the quote here you must be brave when you have a goal so i think that kind of instills in her that sort of confidence that carries through the film. And I think also, even though she's, you know, the sort of the nature of her character is, is one of, of naivety and of innocence, you know, she doesn't, the performance is not cloying. It's not sort of like, like, Oh God, she's so whiny. Like, you know, why can't she just like, you know, she, she like, she's like fully charming. She's fully like kind of, you just, you know, like just wide eyed, Again, not in a way that's particularly, you know, that could have been very annoying. And she just manages to avoid that completely. She has like one of the smallest filmographies. Like she didn't really do a whole lot at all. She's, she has such a great approach to this role. Yeah. Cause usually, especially with films that have like a beautiful, you know, virgin or virginal type, there tends to be a tendency to either portray them as, as like almost supernaturally wide-eyed to the point where it's like this is it's a bit much you know it's just like running around looking like a blithe doll or something and you know or you know they're they're acting like they're four years old and that's creepy you know she has a really good she's naive but she's not stupid you know she is definitely has a sense of self and which makes it so smart because you feel protective over her you do at times be like man girl get get out of it's the same place. As much as we love a family, it's like you wouldn't, you know, 
So it, it's it's like art. It's like a lot of artists, you know. You can love the artists, but would you want to be roommates with them? Like I love Klaus Kinski. Would I want a room with him? Probably not. No, you don't want that. No, he would he would shit in your shoes for sure. Oh, and I thought that's a good day. Yeah, I like that she sees all these kind of crazy things, experiences these things, but she doesn't. She de- either doesn't react in a a natural way, you know, because yeah, you're watching movies and you're just like, why would you even stay in the room? What are you doing? But she just kind of accepts them and moves on and helps us move through this strange landscape as well. And I just really like the pacing of this, the way that we're moving through the story. There's a lot of great camera moves. Speaking of moving, a lot of great moving cameras that we're doing here, like zooms and zooms in, zoom out, and just kind of moving around. I I really appreciate the cinematography of this as well. You get those moments where like, she goes up to visit her aunt who's dying, and we go through this large room, and there's this woman in the background, but not out of sight. And you would think, Okay, is she going to acknowledge this woman? She doesn't. She just kind of passes by, and then we stay with the woman for a while. And I think that's the person that we come to know as the Queen of Darkness. And she's there drawing all these crosses with what I can only assume is human blood on this piece of paper. And I'm like, okay, this is a nice thing. You know, like I have no idea what's going on here, but this is pretty cool and it looks really cool. And then she goes into this room and sees her aunt and just this whole exchange where she's being whispered at and listening to her aunt as she's dying and she passes away. And then you get that great wake. You already mentioned that Latin that's going on, (laughs) Uh, but that the aunt is there dressed all in black, just sitting there with her eyes wide open. (laughs) I'm like, what is happening here? Again, I think it's meant to be funny. I think it's like there's there you go. There's there's your your sort of dark humor. It's like, you know, am I supposed to be laughing at this? Like it's hilarious, but is it intentionally so? And I think it is. Her eyes are like rolled up and she looks almost like a tortured Catholic saint. This should be on the cover of like a current ninety-three album. Like it's totally some some great such a great image. And there's Car Carmine's painting her toenails. Jerry, that I I like I live I live for this woman. What I wonder if her eyes pointing up like that is is supposed to be echoed with the blind woman Linda that we see later on whose eyes are always up like that as well like you know her eyes are are on heaven kind of thing. And the first time we see Linda, we just see her in close up to the point where I was like is her head now on that table where the vase was? Because we never see anything except for her head in these shots. And we just get the reaction shots from Christina, like get full body of her. And then we cut back to the head of Linda and that she's in Christina's room. I'm like, she could easily be on that table where that head vase was. I could just be projecting, but because we do get her full body later on when uh, Carmenzi is, I, I guess, apparently has stabbed her with scissors or cut her with scissors and now is lapping up the blood. So again, we get this nice vampire imagery in here, which kind of comes out of nowhere. And then, oh, but the other thing with that vampire imagery is that Carmenzi is there licking Linda's wound. And I talked about how Christine would come into a room and then be startled and leave. Well, Carmenzi just keeps talking and keeps talking at 
the space where Christine was. And then eventually Christine comes back into the room. Well, that's kind of nice. It's like, she can't stay away from this stuff. Yeah. I think, I think there's, there's um like a kind of a theme of temptation there. Like I think she, Carmen Zay at one point sort of says something like, you know, don't, don't you want to try it? Like, Oh, come on. It's wonderful. Try it. And I think this is a sort of like reiteration of like Christina protecting her, her innocence or whatever, like she's not going to be tempted to get involved with that. So I think she's just sort of, that's a sort of like, you know, yeah, like a res- resistance of, of getting involved, you know, in, in sort of this diabolical undercurrent that kind of runs through, you know, things that are happening in this house. And you see it in other places like where, you know, they're, Jess Franco's playing with a severed hand or they're trying to uh, get the rings off the severed hand. And she just kind of like doesn't, like that that's the part of this sort of world of this house that she doesn't want to accept and like this sort of this darkness she like that's the part of it like that she's not able to embrace well i should have checked my notes because what this reminds me of a little bit is rocky horror picture show between uncle frank or sorry uncle howard carmen z and then aunt abigail and then you've got the virginal Christine. I mean, all she needs is some asshole named Brad to be hanging out with her because it so reminds me of Frankenfurter, Riff, and the two women type of thing, just the way that it's set up. And I'm so glad that she doesn't react like Janet Weiss. She isn't fainting and throwing her hands up and screaming all the time. She's just experiencing this. And I kind of wonder how many times she has experienced this, if this is a recurring nightmare for her as she's in this hospital allegedly like has she experienced this before and that's why she's not freaking out so much it definitely makes you wonder what happened to the you know when she was in boarding school because they were given a little bit of biographical detail where you know her mother died when she was an infant her father you know and that's why she's coming to the Montserrat who's the the and for the reading of his will, but she's never met him. He's never even sent pictures of himself to her. Though she later, we find out she does get pictures from from Uncle Howard, uh, you know. And she's just been at this boarding school her whole life. She's just been very sheltered. But as we all know, I mean, public school alone can have a lot of trauma attached to it that you're exposed to. I can only imagine <laughs> a boarding school. So, and especially with the sadomasochistic elements, I mean, it, 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 some good, that's the thing. There's so many little like details and nuggets. that gives you such fascinating food for thought. Like this is the film you, you just will keep thinking about after you watch it for so many reasons. Because it's the, the, the production history is, is somewhat complicated. Similarly, like if you read Stephen Thrower's chapter on this in his book, murderous passions he says something about the fact that this movie was um like dubbed some point and then he talks even in the french dub it's it's dubbed, and i think it's the reason for that is because you have such you know for the typical reasons that you had so many european co-productions at this you know time in in film history you know everybody's speaking a different language you know i think the christina von blanc was german um uh, Britt Nichols was Portuguese, you know, Howard Vernon spoke, I think, like every language, basically, you know, there's Spanish speakers in there. So it was dubbed into French. And, and the sort of like strangeness around this that, that Thrower points out is that they're in the scene outside the chapel when Christina and this sort of boy that she runs into while she's out skinny dipping. Um, they head to this little chapel the ch- of St. Cecilia where this like this is strange guy kind of out there and they have this weird sort of conversation with him. And I think he says something like after the death of the general, 
Now, we assume here, obviously, because, you know, out of context that we're talking about uh, General Francisco Francisco Franco. Franco. Yeah, who's still dead. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So in like when this movie was shot, which was, according to my notes, again, from Thor, was shot in November or December of 1971. So obviously, this was well before um, the general Franco passed. And so it's kind of like, well, if this, you know, okay, if this was in, done in the dub, like after 1975, which would be kind of, you know, okay, well, okay, maybe it's reflecting back, but it was probably done before that. So what is it forecast? You know, it was just sort of like, so, you know, what's, what's actually happening here with the dialogue and, and, and the dubbing and when was it done? And, you know, sort of kind of calls into question, like, you know, what's really going on in the script here? And, you know, uh, you know, were there were there changes done in the dub? I mean, if you watch carefully, like, when they're speaking, even even in the French, like, it's not it doesn't match. Um, So, yeah, so it's that's, that's an interesting facet that, for my part, I wasn't really able to find a lot of information on other than the what thrower mentions in his book. It's kind of a mystery. And I mean, I think Franco in Jess Franco, (laughs) and not the general Franco, in general, was not really a guy who was big on, you know, scripts, you know, and dialogue. He kind of just wanted to capture an atmosphere. I think a lot of the times, because a lot of this dubbing was done in post-production, it was just kind of like, you know, just flap your mouth and we'll figure it out, what you're saying out in the rest. And he kind of, you know, would would create some of the story in 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 the editing, at least in sort of his, like, kind of um post very structured studio type of era so like once he's again once he's getting into the 70s it's just kind of like yeah we'll just we'll figure it out and again because no one's speaking the same language it's just writing a script that everyone can follow becomes somewhat difficult i think he kind of just gave them some like okay in this scene you're talking about this and just kind of like you know i think he trusted his actors a lot and i think you see that and you know like anecdotally like actors who talk about working with him you know talk about how how you know generally great he was to work with because he loved actors he loved working with actors he wanted to you know give direction so i think he was maybe not so much like you know he'd probably scribble out kind of how the movie was going to flow on like a couple pieces of paper and then just kind of figured it out as he was shooting or even afterwards i noticed in the english dub it sounded like the voices were closer to the lips. I know this is weird for me to say, but it feels like they were more in place with where characters could be as far as if a person's in another room, they sound distant. If somebody's you know watching from a distance, they sound smaller, quieter than somebody who's right next to the camera type of thing. But with the French dub, it all sounded like they were about three or four feet in front of the actors. And almost like they were in my living room with the, you know, the microphones and the, the, the headphones on and doing the voices right there. And I kind of like that even better because I always talk about this when I'm, you know, when we're talking about surrealistic films is that it adds another level of surrealism that you have these actors speaking a language that obviously doesn't match the mouths and that they are so distanced physically it feels like from the characters themselves that it just adds that extra layer for me and i'm like that's really a nice thing i didn't mind the english dub and usually i do mind english dubs but i just preferred this french one because it made it even stranger i could see that and the english dub actually which i gave a watch today because the french one was the first one and the main one i watched for this for this recording, but I was curious because I had to confirm something with the English dub because I was, 
you know, when I was rewatching the French one, there was like a line of dialogue between Christina and later on, which we'll see her dead father. And there was a line of dialogue that I'm like, this, this dialogue is so familiar. And, but I feel like I'll need the English stuff because I'm like, this sounds like something that was sampled by my life with the thrill kill call. <laughs> and it was, I was. Oh, so really? Happy. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I had no idea. I love yeah. that. And in fact, I found out because in addition to the song I recognize, which, um, and it's off the same album, Confessions with the Knife Part 1 is the track that has that sample from the English dub version of the dialogue with Christina and her father. But there's another track on the same album. I even made sure to write this one down, Burning Dirt, which has some of the English dub conversation between her and the blind woman. So I was, I just got chills literally right now. I was like, oh, I love, that's the joy of being into like just anything outside the bounds of, you know, straight society, because you can find all this connective tissue. And, you know, it's like, you know, even even in the internet age, you still discover a little like, things that are new to you. And it's just the coolest. But also, I agree. Like, I do love that. Like, sometimes, like, you know, I mean, dubbing can be such a nuisance in so many films. But when it works, it does. And especially something like this, it does, like, it does kind of just add a whole other, just like, okay, well, I'm not, there's no reliable narration already. So yeah, let's go with it. <laughs> exactly. I think you just sort of embrace it as part of the the weirdness. And, you know, that's, that's part of the charm. That's like what we, what we love about these movies. A hundred percent. And yes. Oh, and with the Nico thing, the French actress, she has a husky tone to it to her voice like she sounds like nico had that range that kind of deeper range to her even just speaking voice that i love so much and just definitely it's like if nico was like saucy and, un- and potentially undead she would be carmine's or carmine's i absolutely love that guy that you're talking about at the the chapel and i love that when we see him it's shot with the wide angle lens almost a fisheye it's so wide that he just gets so distorted and yeah, he's just dropping like little, you know, little things around here about how, um, you know, they prefer when there are so many shooting stars. And I like how shooting stars was kind of the idea for this one, that the original title was what, Night of the Shooting Stars, I think. Night of the Shooting Stars, yeah, was was Franco's preferred title. And that they shot this in Portugal, which was Soledad Miranda's home or something, or like very close to where she lived, I think is where they shot this at. So it's like another tribute to her as well by where they're shooting this at. Yeah. I mean, and, and not only that, I mean, I think, I think Franco and, or maybe because of that, you know, Franco had a very close connection to this, this area and, and, and Portugal and, and what he loved about working in Portugal was, was that, um, you know, in contrast to somewhere like Spain, you know, he, he just had a lot more liberty is like, you know, the, the Portuguese government was, you know, just kind of said like, oh, you need, you know, some, some, you know, you need locations, here you go, or you need, you know, you need some, you know, like, I think they, like, there were Portuguese, like, army members who were, like, you know, stationed, you know, sort of, I guess, like, you know, as bodyguards, or as, you know, sort of to protect the shooting locations from, you know, people who might wander in or something like that. His his time working in Portugal, like he he just felt very kind of like at home and and like he was able to do what he really wanted to do without the kind of like you know General Franco esque interference that he would have in Spain and which caused him to leave Spain to work in like France and, and other parts of Europe in the first place. Well, even you know you're talking about the the Latin 
the funeral scene from earlier, the wake, I suppose, and that those lines, those noises that they were making were silenced in Italy because it was seen as sacrilegious. It's like, geez, and I don't even know what they would have done to this film in Spain because, I mean, there's a pretty big rivalry between Spain, Italy, and Poland to me as far as which is the most Catholic of all the Catholic countries. Well, and the, all those like really beautiful close-ups of Basilio like doing that thing, you know, when you're so tired and you're trying to kind of stay awake and your eyes are like practically rolling back. Oh, that was hilarious. The, I was uh, the, the will reading scene. I think was is is I, I believe is what you're talking about. And just like you know, we all have been in that that position again brilliant another brilliant touch of comedy it just like you know everyone's like everyone else is like sitting there like serious like trying to listen and like even carmen's a you know normally just kind of would will do whatever she wants to do is just like kind of looks over at him snoring like can you not do that like <laughs> and you know basilio is just yeah just like like clearly expressing like the boredom that anyone would would feel in this situation you know but not perhaps not be able to express yeah that lawyer just drones on and on and on while he's reading that will and i'm just like wow is this really what we're doing here and to the point where i was like this is hilarious this whole scene and i'm pretty sure i'm supposed to be laughing at this because yeah yeah it seems to be like a typical franco like poking fun at bourgeois establishment and and rules and tradition I think he's just happy to have a go at like how ridiculous and, and, you know, overly formalized it all is. Kind of reminded me of when they were walking Frank Drebin to the gas chamber or wasn't no, no, sorry. It was Nick Rivers when they were walking Nick Rivers to the gas chambers. In Domini Patrum Spiritus Morbium Dios Madre, Omnia Gallia Divisa Est in Tres Partes, Corpus Delicti, Quid Pro Quo, Veni Vidi Vici. No lo contendere, habeos corpus ricturus, ipso facto pro forma paripasu, hic haec hoc huius huius huius, e pluribus unum. Orie oinge ute etge, aid rei in the erge, tempus fugit, cadea emptor, coetus interruptus, mitzigena ad nauseam. Amen. He's like, oh, I should read to you the statutes for, you know, Particle 23 and 24, but I won't. And then he goes on and does it anyway. You know, basically, he drones on and on for several minutes to make his point, which is basically to say, like, does anyone object? No? Okay, cool. Everything goes to Christina. You know, like, really, it doesn't take... I love that, like, the the lawyers, one of the creeps that was, like, peeping... And isn't he the one that says the thing like, oh, what would you what would you do to young flesh like that young living flesh? Yeah, I would bite her to the bone, he says. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that whole scene is is really great. And, uh, you know, if we if we could, I don't, don't mind if I just back up a little bit to talk about talk about the scene in particular, because I think it's really interesting for a number of reasons. You know, we start off where like Christina is, you know, having breakfast and she's like, I'm going to go out for a walk. And, you know, the aunt or whatever says like, you know, Oh, you know, don't go too far. Like as if she's a child. And, you know, Carmen says like, she's not a child. She, you know, she's fine. Like let her go. And which, to which Christina is very kind of like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, I'm a big girl. I can do what I want. And I think again, so she goes out in this beautiful sunny day and like there's greenery everywhere. And for what I think, I think 
this point, I think, where you sort of are able to distinguish the house, which is full of dead things and dead people. Like we've got the bats, we've got the fish head, we've got ghosts, all of these like dead things, death and decay and weird things and goings on. And then she goes out and she's just like in nature and like greener and the music changes. And suddenly we have like this like lilting, you know, happy Etta Delorso kind of slightly groovy, like just beautiful, like piece of music. I love it. And, and one thing I noticed about this scene as, as Christina's like out heading down to this, I think possibly the first time we see the lily pond, she's wearing like most throughout most of the film she's wearing like neutral colors like white or black or i think and again when we talk about the end of the film we'll get to it but you know blue nightgown at some point but in this scene in particular she's wearing like this like little green velvet like jumpsuit or like top and and like little shorts and it looks like moss like it she just like matt like she's just suddenly like in her element clearly like she's 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 just like fully immersed in this like you know this there's this happy music playing you know she's you know, she's skinny dipping. She feels, I mean, she doesn't realize she's being spied upon, but she just feels like there's like the spirit of like, kind of like freshness and liberation that she, you know, has had to put aside while she's had to deal with all of, you know, get used to dealing with this family. So I think there's like a huge, like tonal shift that's um, so interesting. And then she meets like this younger guy. I still have, I have like sort of multiple interpretations in, in my mind of like, who he is and what he represents. And I think it's not, obviously it's not particularly clear, but I think what is clear is that like Christina is definitely like having a connection, like for the first time to this place where she is, that she was initially like, you know, had some doubts about, or, you know, some, some, you know, fear sort of crept into her mind and she's dealing with these weird people and there's death, but then suddenly she's like in this like whole new world. And I love when that guy takes her back to the house and, Basically, I think he thinks he's going to get lucky. And when Uncle Howard comes out, we're seeing it from her point of view. And he's just like, hey, get lost. Get out of here. But the reaction of the guy's face, he just saw a ghost, which is really pretty awesome because he freaks the fuck out and gets out of there so fast. Way more than just Howard being like, hey, get out of here. It's like, okay, you know, like, what do you want from me? I mean, his reaction is just like... You know, not as big as like, you know, the, the Italian Spider-Man or something like that, but it's a pretty big reaction. He's out of there in a, a flash. He also seems to really anticipate that something is going to go wrong when he goes to the house because he, when Christina says, come on, I'll show you. It's great. You know, cause she says like, oh, I live at Montesserata. And, and, you know, he's like, no, you know, as everyone says when they hear this name, that's not in the immediate family, like nobody lives there. That's ridiculous. You know, she's like, oh, come on, I'll show you. And he's like, Okay, if you say so, but yeah, like I said, maybe, or like you said, like maybe in the interest of, you know, getting on, getting it on with Christina or whatever. But yeah, he's, he's definitely like a little iffy about, you know, he definitely like knows that something is up at this mansion that's not quite right. So I think when he encounters that, that element, it's just like, oh no, like, uh, I sort of thought to be interested to know what, what you guys think as well is this young guy whose name we never learn. We don't know where he comes from. All we know is what do we know about him? He, he doesn't have a job right now. And that, you know, he, he tells he lives in the area and, and skinny dipping. He is, he tells her skinny dipping is forbidden. But one thing he says I thought was really interesting and I I just didn't know how to really interpret it. And, and maybe there's a mundane explanation for it, but he says to her, uh, you know, as he says, Hey, you know, skinny dipping isn't allowed here. And she's like, no one can see me. And he says, you can be seen from above. 
it, it stuck with me for some reason because like I almost felt like okay well yes they're physically in a valley so I mean because you kind of think about okay how is the geography of this place working and you, it's never entirely clear like you know and intentionally so probably you know it's like what is there like are there towns up above that can see down into the valley how does that work with the, like a small lily pond you know and I almost interpret it as and I think in the in the commentary that's on the DVD for this, there's a lot of talk of, you know, whether or not there are, you know, are angels amongst these demonic characters. Like, for instance, the blind, the blind woman, like it suggested, you know, in the commentary that she's an angel. So I kind of wondered, like, you know, is he this young guy, like one of these sort of celestial beings or an angel himself that, you know, by being seen from above, he's talking about like from heaven. I mean, again, just it just sort of cross my mind but it, again it could be there could be a totally mundane kind of oh yeah it's just from above the valley she can be seen i wouldn't go so far as to say that he's an angel but i think he is talking about being seen from above where we see the ant's eyes pointing where we see the blind lady's eyes pointing i think he is talking about that for me though he's he's not necessarily an angel or a demon i think he's just a young man who wants to get it on and sees this very attractive girl He's kind of a protector with chasing away those two creeps, but at the same time, I don't think he's 100% pure at heart. What's interesting is, and, and I again, I don't mean to talk about the, the ending before we get there, but um, you know, if we just briefly jump ahead to the very ending where we have the stream of characters who are all now in a group heading back into this pond, that guy is like the only, basically, aside from like the doctor in the hospital and woman running the hotel the only characters who are not amongst this group who are heading into the pond so i mean does that then cement him as a mortal or you know yeah again it's sort of like why why isn't doesn't that character end up in the this last scene where everybody pretty much else is and there are people that want to take advantage of christine but it feels like it's her own relatives because of after they read that will it's like you know, hey, Carmen Z, get your ass off that rug. It doesn't belong to you anymore. You know, she's naked on this rug. One of the the images that I know from this movie when I see it in books or magazines and all that. I mean, because again, going back to the you know the early mid '90s when we're pouring over Video Search of Miami catalogs, this is also the era of zines. So you have a lot of people writing about these movies. So it's like getting an image like that is something that sticks in your head. So all of these years later, as soon as I saw that, I was like, Oh, this, that image is from this movie. Okay. I get it now. But when, after they read that will, it's like, Oh, well, I guess we'll be going now. This is going to be really tough, man. It's going to be a lot of, like we'll, we'll uh, find somewhere to go. Don't worry about us. Don't worry about us. We'll, we'll, we'll be okay. Oh man. And then, yeah, she's, Oh no, no, you don't have to leave at all. And it's like, do you know what you're doing? You're keeping all of these bad spirits here. Like by this time in the movie, I'm just like, yeah, they're totally haunting her after, after they talked about how they don't that much, they don't have much of an appetite anymore. I'm just like, okay. Yeah. All right. I get it now. And after all the warnings she's been given by, by Linda, by her father, by even the woman at the, uh, the hotel several other characters you know uh, the um uh, her, her, hermenia like you know don't you know it's it's evil get out of here you've got to go while you still can like she's just like okay you know <laughs> but they're nice <laughs> 
that's what mystified me when she was when she was still like oh they're lovely and it's like how are we defining this how are we <laughs> i mean they're riveting they've shown me so much hospitality and gracious it's like Totally. I mean, it's, it's the innocence of that, of Christina, I think, just to go like, oh, but they're, you know, they, they mean well, you know. I just wanted to go back to the, 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 the dancing on the carpet scene again, because uh, I, this to me, I remember the first time I saw this, and this is, this scene in particular, like, it sounds like with you guys as well, like it's, it stands out so strongly. It's like, what's going on here? And I remember the first time, like I said, the first time I watched this, I didn't, didn't quite all gel for me, even though I had seen some Franco before. I was just kind of like, yeah, it's good. But that one, that scene in particular stuck with me because one of the motifs and one of, you know, something that you see in almost, almost every Just Franco film that you see, there's almost always some kind of nightclub scene where there's a dancer or someone doing some kind of weird performance art. And in this movie, obviously there isn't the context for a nightclub scene. But for me, Carmen's a rolling around naked on the floor while the piano is playing. <laughs> is her nightclub scene, you know, and like Basilio is watching and clapping and I'm just kind of like, this is the nightclub scene. Oh yeah. I love how happy he gets. I know lighting the matches and just throwing it just like Franco is just so it's just, I just can't say enough about like how hilarious he is in this. It's just, it's just, it's effortless. (laughs) I loved, I loved him with the matches for some reason, that little detail just cracked me up. I was and he really it's it's so funny because the character goes really goes back and forth from from being the sort of like comic oaf like doing like you know barely verbal like you know doing weird inexplicable things falling asleep at the reading of the will to being like actually pretty a pretty diabolical character i mean like you know what do we see him you know we see him you know obviously he's like they're playing with well, the cutoff chicken head first of all like you know which is this, again this beautiful weird surrealist phallic moment you know, we see him with the severed chicken head. We see him, you know, he's playing with the severed hand, which he and the aunt have clearly like, you know, uh, you know, gotten together to go like, okay, well, we're going to steal her rings and her gold teeth. And like, oh, we hated her. Like, that's, at least that's what the aunt says. So they're like, you know, conspiring to basically rob her grave. And then, and then he murders Linda. So like he strangles Linda because I think Linda, again, for for like the nth time in the film, Linda tries to warn Christina, like, you've got to get out of here. This this family is not good. You know, it's it's only gonna spell, you know, your doom. You know, you've got to get out while you can. And he you see him sort of pass by as she's saying this for like I said, the second or third or whatever at the time. And that's when he's like, Okay, we have to get rid of her. And that's when he's you know, shortly after that you see him like strangle her on the bed. So yeah, so he it's like this weird, this really weird mix of like funny sort of stupid oath and like also like incredibly evil henchmen. I mentioned the phallus before. And so after she's like, oh yeah, y'all can stay here. That's fine. And she climbs these stairs up to the second floor again. I love these stairs. They're just, they look terrific. Obviously, I don't even think they were in this building. It feels like they were shot someplace else, but they're just so great. And she goes up there, and of course we have another sleeping scene, sleeping in this big 70s necklace, this chunky wooden necklace that looks like it would you couldn't fall asleep with that, because it would make so much noise. And if it ever got under you, forget it, it's got to be super uncomfortable. But anyway, then she starts to have that dream, I think it's a dream anyway, of the big dildo on the floor. And when she knocks it away, it's like, what have you done? 
oh my gosh, everything's going to go to shit now. Like the family's like totally panicked that that happened. Like you didn't accept this gift. You know, you didn't deflower yourself. Now everything is going to go right to hell. And I love that that's the moment that just kicks this movie into the third act. Before we get to the third act, I actually have a question for um, for you guys. And it's a detail that has been sticking with me. But my knowledge of Catholicism is not the greatest. Because, I mean, I was raised um, the mix of all the worst Protestant religions. Uh, but the, the man outside the chapel mentioned that he's traveled for miles and miles and miles because this was the only chapel left that was dedicated and followed St. Cecilia. But the chapel's been closed for, for a long time. Is there is there a significance to St. Cecilia in particular as a saint? To this mess? I am not Catholic, but what I do know about St. Cecilia and about in the context of this film, and I can't remember if it comes from Thrower's book or or where I or if it's from the commentary, I can't remember where I picked this detail up, but St. Cecilia, among other things, is patron saint of the blind, is is what I is my understanding, or at least, you know, Franco, you know, sort of you know, this is like what Franco was working with. So that I think that kind of is some way in which it plays it. I forget. And she's painting of something else. I think it was, must've been the commentary where I picked this music. Okay. Yeah. Well, that would, yeah, that's right. That's right. Makes, makes sense as well. So. Oh man, that's so cool. And God, that plays in so perfectly to everything. And you know, what's funny is my first viewing when I first saw Howard Vernon in this film, the first time I watched it, I for a minute thought like uncle Howard was blind. Because when he's playing the piano, he never once goes to really look at Christina. Like, this is a new visitor. This is a relative. He has never, he's never met his niece in person. And he's just like, eyes focused. And I first thought, oh, maybe he's blind. But then later on, it's like, oh, no, he's not blind. He just was rude, I guess. <laughs> it's like, and also, like, wow, no, that's, that's fascinating. Because music's obviously such a big part. And then, I mean... Blindness has many forms, too. It's like, could we say Christina's blind because she willfully kind of doesn't pay attention to all of the red flags? Like, now our own sort of willing, I mean, it's God, it's kind of dark, but, you know, sometimes like our willingness to try and see good in things that maybe doesn't have good in us makes us unwillingly blind and can kind of put us in danger, too. It's so hard to grasp what's really going on the first time you watch it you know and again that's why it didn't really stick with me on the first watch i think it took me to be pick up all of these details just just to bring back thrower and you know his his sort of analysis of this film i mean he calls it a poem and and des- describes it as being distinctly non-narrative i mean and yes there is a story sort of an undercurrent of a story that runs through it but i mean really it it, it doesn't necessarily you know take place in order or you know it's 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 i mean kind of more or less in order but i mean it is there is a very poetic structure to it i think and the the, the details yes i mean it's it's like it's all it's it's the 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 sort of poetic quality you know is all of these details that just sort of bring it together like like you can't absorb that in all in one viewing i think you know i think i think that's pick them up like okay i kind of know know what happens in this in terms of like bare bones plot now i can go back and pick up the detail so yeah, I think it I think it really rewards the viewer by being watched more than once because then you pick, start to pick up these little these little things. Yeah, and I can see myself going back and watching this one multiple times just for fun, just because it's such a great experience to see this. So, 
Again, thank you so much, Jessica, for turning me on to this movie because it's wonderful. There's one part in here that I think is one of the best images that I've seen in a movie in a long time, and that is when she has the vision of her father, and her father had hanged himself or been hanged, and you get that shot of him. It's a moving shot, and he's got the noose around his neck, and the rope is going straight up, and I don't think we ever see the end of the rope. It's like it's still... He's still hanging, basically, and we're moving through this forest, and the camera's moving, and just... With him, it's like a drifting. Yeah, and the camera is very much stuck at the same distance from him the whole way through. It's almost like a snorri cam type of effect, going backwards as he is moving. And I just, I love that image. I thought that was wonderful to see. In what I have seen of of Jess Franco's films, which is not an insignificant number, it is absolutely one of the most striking images from all of his films. I think there's a couple of them in this film, but that one in particular really, really sticks with you. And the whole mood of that scene, um, again, I feel like there's a really big shift here. The music, first of all, is like this sort of very, very like, it's almost like a lullaby, but very sad. It's like this crystalline sort of like tinkling piano. And you see the father like drifting and, and just Paul Muller has this like very kind of like sad, but like almost kind of, like an acceptance of his fate kind of look on his face and christina is just distraught and she's just i mean and not in the like we're going back to like how the actress does not overplay this like she's not you know screaming and crying but she's just like you know you know pear pear you know father father you know like and she's just crying out to him and for me like the scene is really like kind of where just franco's kind of pain in in kind of recovering from the loss of soledad miranda comes in like his his you know him trying to work through that pain is really visceral here and i think he sort of the sense of loss and and christina's loss and sense of loneliness paralleled with franco's really comes through this particular shot i think it's really like i just could feel it like um i just think it works so so well it's it's just so and and it's and if you and you know if you know the story of like you know his working relationship with soledad and her passing it just it's just so haunting and the thing I love, too, is you get, like, depth to his character, even though, like, we only get to really see her father, you know, for, like, a handful of minutes, if that. But, you know, because there's even a line, and I can't, I can't remember exactly how it's phrased, but basically he alludes to, like, you know, he was not a good person, you know, and he, he did, you know, in a lot of ways he kind of earned his fate. Like, he did a lot of bad things, but you could tell he feels horrible because this is his daughter that he basically was not there for of course you know given the family that's probably <laughs> and for the best but but i love that and i love it when a film is 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 savvy enough to kind of give you that little bit of gray or it's not just all villainy and saints because that's not life he's the, he's not a good man but you know that doesn't mean he doesn't have good in him um, but it also, I think just further lends to just like the, the doom, like the further you get, you're like, I don't think this fairy tale is going to have a happy ending. It's interesting. The, the character of the father, I mean, we, we, we don't, we know he's done something bad and we know he is paying penance in the afterlife for, you know, some, something terrible he's done. Also, there's an ambiguity there because a, he says to Christina, they killed me, implying that he was murdered. And what we hear at the end 
we don't I don't think we hear a suicide alluded to until the very end of the movie where the doctor says like, you know, when when Christina is like recovering in the hospital and you sort of put together that like, you know, this has been a fever dream or, you know, it could have been a fever dream or it's, you know, some other working on some other dimensional level, like, oh, you know, she was brought in here. She was very distraught after, you know, her father killed himself recently. And that's when you realize like, okay, well, you know, so like there's a weird ambiguity there. And um, again, it's kind of an aside, but Stephen Thrower in his, in his writing on this film, suggests and i think it's really interesting and i don't know if either of you have seen this film suggests that perhaps um ernesto i think is the father's name the father is is perhaps a character from another franco film an earlier franco film called eugenie de Sade, where he's like a sort of a it's a an adapt, it's one of um franco's like Sad adaptations and he's like this completely evil character who's a murderer you know he's like having an inappropriate relationship with a stepdaughter he's just like fully evil a thrower suggests that possibly like this is this that character is appearing in this film and paying the penance for the bad things he did in the previous film which i think is an interesting theory i mean if you know if you're familiar with this film but and again sort of i think because thrower is such a you know obviously like diehard Franco-maniac, like, like, you know, many of us are, you know, I think he's, he's sort of like kind of drawing those parallels, I think. And again, it goes back to like, you know, you watch enough of these Franco films, you start drawing parallels between them, which, you know, may not exist, but it's so fascinating to, like, posit, you know, that that may be true that, you know, because, because these connections do exist, it's it's so tempting to draw more. Um, so when I read that in his book, I just thought that was like such a fascinating idea. And would would be entirely out of character for Franco to to do, even on a like a very very subtle level. No, I think there's definitely something when it comes to what he's doing with his characters, his casting when when he because he reuses his people a lot, and when it's like oh you know you know this is the Howard Vernon role in this one and this one you know I think he's very smart about who he reuses and when and what baggage they're bringing because he's making what average of like 10 films a year at this point that's yeah like this is like this is kind of like the era at which like again i sort of because i see this movie as a kind of like creative redemption for him you know this is like like after this film was done was like like was the start of this like incredibly prolific one of his most prolific periods where yeah he was doing like 10 11 12 films a year just like pumping them out and you know not all of them are great but you know there are some of his best work is in there franco is like the king of reuse like he's you know in a way like i feel like his films are in a lot of ways like retelling stories again and again and you know it's sort of a you know you can interpret that as like franco psychologically working through his own issues or you know oh i didn't you know when i did this film this time i didn't you know i I don't really like how i did it i'm gonna redo it and he just wasn't afraid to like completely reuse characters ideas names themes you know just like you know oh yeah I, you know it's like never mind that i already did a film that was like almost the same as like i'll remake my own film you know it's it's he was just not afraid to like tackle again and again you know or you know it's all kind of part of the universe you know again that's again going back to you know the, the tim lucas quote you you can't you can't see one franco film until you've seen them all because you know really there there's a, a way of of connecting them can draw so many connections and that's intentional on franco's part in some ways and also i think up to the viewer the viewer's imagination to like make these connections 
the father character, I mean, he's all over this third act. And before that, he had only shown up in the photograph that she has of him. I kept looking at that photograph thinking that there were flies on the photo. Were you guys seeing anything like yeah. on the side? Like maybe it was just dirt. I don't know. I think it, I think it is dirt, but I think absolutely think you are not wrong with that flies parallel. I saw it too. And I, I think possibly it's intentional because before, and again, this goes back to like the themes of like decay and death in the house is like, there's this scene and it's right before where Christina sees or, or hears her father, it's unclear whether she's actually seeing him or just hearing his voice, sees him for the first time. It's where she's got this, the dead fish in front of her. And oh, she turns yeah. around and she goes to the window and she looks out the window and she sees her reflection. And there's these flies buzzing around. And I think that scene is connected to the the, the scene of the picture with the flies. Again, I, I think it's suggestive of death and decay. And I just think it's 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 there is a connection between between those two for sure. Oh, I know. It was Lodge Door, where there were flies on the father's face in that one as well. So I was kind of picking up on that one, too, just because it does really feel like he's a, a student of Boonwell's, especially in this movie. It just feels very natural to me. Yeah, I think there's an undeniable. And I think it's, you know, it has some things to do with the fact that, you know, they they both sort of were lapsed Catholics or Catholics who were had turned atheist but couldn't let go of some of their natural born Catholicism based on how they were the where they were raised and there's definitely a lot of parallels between their work and I think in this film really you see it the most I think back to like want to talk about like distinctly surrealist imagery I think Thrower actually calls this like one of the most defining images of Franco's work is the scene where Basilio, and it's almost a throwaway scene because it doesn't really necessarily mean anything if you just kind of watch it and are just trying to follow it from a narrative standpoint. There's a scene towards the end where Basilio is standing near a grandfather clock and he reaches up and like just twists the hands of the grandfather clock. Like just like, he's like destroying time. He's like destroying a sort of a, you know, any kind of like you know, sort of sensical continuum or timeline, like just kind of almost like this isn't real. I just love that, that image so much. And interestingly, and, you know, perhaps, you know, it's, this is a segue into talking about uh, where Roland comes in. It reminds me so much of the scene from Roland's Shiver of the Vampires with the grandfather clocks. I mean, I think clocks are such a, such a, such a, you know, I mean, you see them so often in surrealist paintings and surrealist art. It's like it feels like it's undeniable. And since both Roland and Franco, even if you 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 know sort of don't connect their work as filmmakers, like there is an undeniable sort of lineage from surrealism and inf influence of surrealism and surrealist art on on their work. But yeah, I couldn't when I saw that scene, like it stood out to me. But then also I thought of like, oh wow, this and which and Shiver the Vampires was made the same year. Um, it was a shot, shot in seventy one, so it's it's. I don't know. It just draws like a really nice connection, I think, between the two, the two of them. Even even though I think, in and of themselves, they didn't necessarily consider themselves similar filmmakers. Even though we, you know, who look back on their films can can see the sort of relationship or or you know similarities, and, and you know people who would be fans of one would would likely be fans of the other, or how there's a, a sort of a Euro cult tradition, how to connect the work of the two. That may be true, but where does Joe D'Amato fit into this? He is on another level. Except in our hearts. Except in our hearts. Uh, 
I do love thinking of this like perverse holy trinity where it's instead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, it's the what you say, like Jess, Joe, and Sean. It's funny because I kept thinking, like, Uncle Howard, I was like, God, he's fabulous. Like, I love the uncles so much in Shiver of the Vampires, like the the two uncles in that. And you, of course, have like a familial of a you know supernatural sort of kinship. Yeah. And again, it's an innocent coming into a weird house where she has family that she doesn't know and is kind of being drawn into a weird world. So yeah, wow. I hadn't thought about that either, but there, I guess there were sort of multiple parallels you could draw between those. Two. The key difference is that with, with Shiver, it's, you know, she's it's basically, it's sort of like a chance for empowerment and sort of shedding off status quo duties. And, you know, and here it's a completely different kettle of fish, like poor Christina and, and Shivers. I was, I was for the uncles hundred percent. I was like, man, that fit, that family's amazing. I think Shivers, <laughs> Shivers doesn't have quite that sort of streak of, of melancholy that Christina does, even if it has, you know, sort of some things in common. I think, yeah, it's, there is a similarity, but yeah, I think, I think fundamentally like there's, that's the difference is, is that there's, you know, um, I can't remember the name of the character. Isla, I think, is the name of the 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 main character in Shivers. You know, she's she's just sort of like kind of like plunges in head first to like, you know, all right, you know, I'm gonna be a vampire. Here we go. And Christina sort of is more resistant of being sort of drawn into the diabolical. Yeah, this movie just it goes into overdrive. Like I said, once she slaps away that phallus, it just becomes this whole other thing. All of these layers start to peel away. We've got the death of Linda, we've got Uncle Howard is going to murder her at one point. In fact, in, at one point I wrote in my notes, it looks like he's going to eat her. So going back to that cannibalism thing, you know, eat her to the bone kind of thing. And I love when she quote unquote wakes up and the, the doctor is there, the creepy count. I love that they call him the count in that earlier scene too. Count, count, what would you do to her? Um, that he ends up giving her a shot with one of the biggest needles I've ever seen in my life. And he just goes in for it too. He's just like, Oh yeah. I'm like, wow. Talk about phallic symbols. My God. Yeah. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. And you've got those words echoing from the queen of darkness. You know, you're going to create your own nightmares. Like you're going to be stuck here forever kind of thing. So I don't know if, Five minutes after this movie ends, if Christina is comatose in a psych ward someplace, or if she has escaped from what's going on, I mean, mentally escaped, because I really feel that there is some good closure at the end of this movie with all of these spirits going into that lily pond, and it feels like, okay, this chapter has closed, because otherwise it feels like I was saying before, this could have been going on for forever. We don't know. According to Alain Petit, who um, wrote another, in addition to Stephen Thoreau, wrote another really like huge talk in French on the works of Franco. And he he was actually a, an associate of Franco's in the 70s and, and onwards and, and wrote a series of, I, I don't, I guess they're magazines or zines. They were called the Manicoa Files. It was some of the earliest writing on Just Franco from someone who worked with him and knew him personally and his associates. I think, I think he's in downtown briefly as well, since we mentioned that this is one of, he, he cites, this as one of like the top five Franco films. And he has a lot to say about this film and, and, and what he wrote, his interpretation of the end, which was, wasn't really something I had considered because I too sort of thought like she's in a, in a mental institution. And the last shot you see of her before the pond scene 
of Christina that is, is, is she's, she's sort of reaching out, right? Like she's kind of staring and like reaching out over the, over like the bed frame, you know, in the, in the hospital. Alain Petit suggests that she dies, that she's, she dies in that scene and that she has to die because, um, and some of the dialogue that's a little bit like kind of poetic and vague, like implies this. If you watch this a few times, he insists he thinks says that she has she has to die as a sacrifice to like end the curse of the family and so he sees that as her you know her death and then she's able to like lead the family into the pond that's his interpretation like i said in multiple watches of this movie i had not really it hadn't really occurred to me that she had like died i mean yeah i thought she may be a coma but i i don't know i don't know if that 100 percent works for me that that interpretation but that's that's what he suggests. But I think even if she does die, you have to see like a redemption. There's a death. It's not a tragic death, particularly, you know, in as much as a death cannot be, you know, can be not tragic. Uh, you know, she sort of transcends into another level of, of being. And like I said, like sort of redeems like herself, her family, her father, like all of these people who are there on the, with her sort of like staring. They're all kind of standing there, not almost not sadly, but almost like with a sort of, like mute acceptance of what has to happen like you know okay she's done this thing they've gone into the pond we will follow them and that is how we end our story tying this into like where franco was in his career i don't see it as like a sad thing i see it as like a kind of you know frank a franco coming to terms with like death and you know mourning and this kind of thing and 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 depression brought on by by you know experiencing the death of a loved one i think he sort of is able to like tie it up and move forward for me that's how i interpret the end oh man that shot of the family on the hill like those different shots the way like the people like the composition and it's like you'll have one sort of staggered it's gorgeous it's so and how it goes it sort of goes in and out of focus like there's you know a character in the foreground a character in the background and it's sort of that beautiful the cinematography in this is just so beautiful i think it was done by jose clement and i don't know i actually don't know what else he's done but it's just so so well done it's some of the most beautiful camera work i think in any of franco's films and i think that's that's part i mean i think franco is responsible for this as well but i think i think the cinematographer is also should be given tons of credit for like how visually striking this movie is on so many levels it just looks absolutely beautiful like the you know the panning shots of of the father and the, you know the 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 way the camera moves through the forest and like it's just all so beautifully done it just it just works in my notes i've got one where it's like what was it zoom out from darkness and i was just like i love this shot yeah, <laughs> yeah <I mean> like <laughs> rack focus to the bed frame you know just like all these little things because i was so impressed that i was writing down these great shots yeah i mean you mentioned the zoom and i think we talked about it briefly earlier and i mean yes we you know everyone who knows anything about franco we make the jokes about i mean you know if you love franco you you love the zooms. You just have to, you accept it as part of the work. But I think this is a, possibly as much as I love Franco, I'm going to say this. <laughs> this is one instance where the, the zooms are used so perfectly. Like they're not, they don't sort of, I mean, yes, they stand out because obviously, you know, Mike, you've noted them a few times. You know, you, you do see them, you do notice them. And it's just a signature of Franco that, sh- that should be there. I think there's no reason why it shouldn't be there. But, but I think <laughs> for once, Franco is, you know, very sort of economical with the use of them and very like um, meticulous and, you know, only uses them for like very, you know, very specifically. 
it's an example of how you could see that he, you know, yes, he loves a zoom, but he knows how to use it as well. He's not, you know, I mean, he may go crazy with it in some other movies, but you know, he does, he doesn't, you know, when it comes down to it, he's a, he's a technically very good filmmaker and he knows what he's doing. It's just, you know, I think it comes down to with Franco, you know, does he care about the film that he's working on? And with such a personal project like this, yes. But I think, you know, in some other like movies where he's just trying to make a quick buck off something and, you know, he's working at a, at a pace and he doesn't, you know, just kind of like, or he's started a film and he, you know, and this is like a typical story that you hear about Franco's working style is he starts something, gets bored halfway through it and then goes, well, I don't really know how to finish this. I just want to get it over with. So he like, you know, it's kind of sloppy. And again, I say this as a diehard Franco fan. But I think, again, like there's like, this is a film where you can really see that he does know what he's doing. He's a technically very good filmmaker. He just doesn't, he's like a, like a naughty school child. It's like, he doesn't always apply himself properly <laughs> if he doesn't care. So, um, his report card. His report card. Needs improvement. Yeah. That, that's such an excellent point, especially because I feel, I feel like sometimes, you know, I'm sure we've all read some, you know, reviews of some of Jess's stuff and about Jess in general that are less than kind. And I always want to take those those writers and be like, you name me anybody who's made that much of anything, whether it's writing, musician, you know, filmmaker, painter, whoever, is every everything going to be a masterpiece? There are filmmakers that have made four movies, and not not everyone's going to be a hit out of the park. You know, it's and especially because with film, geez, I mean, there are so many factors you cannot control. Like unless unless you're just in a in a really great situation where you have money and no and the people attached to the money are gonna let you do what you want to do, which that's something all filmmakers dream of, but it so rarely if ever happens. So yeah, I mean just and the fact that like we're still talking about them and the fact that like I mean and you reminded me Jessica because I knew that Tim like Tim Lucas had been writing about Jess for a long long time him and Thrower kind of like the two OGs in a lot of ways but I didn't realize it went back all the way as you know as early as like 1990 and that's which is so so astonishing and again like any you know because that era especially in America like. You know, that's so niche. I mean, it's niche now because as any of us who have day jobs, if somebody's like, oh, what, what do you talk about on podcasts or write about? And you just get to the point where you're like, don't worry about it. Stuff you don't know. Tim Lucas's article from uh, Video Watchdog from 1990, How to Read a Franco Film, which is, as I was saying before we started recording, was was really like one of the first really like, at least in English, like really critical breakdowns of his film and what's great about that particular article is like you know tim sets out at the beginning to you know and i mean and this is 1990 when you know i mean you think about how much of franco's work is available now it's still a fraction of his overall output i mean what was available in 1990 like not a lot but i think i think tim in 1990 still managed to get a hold of like I think he said like 75 film, which seems like an enormous amount back then. It's funny because I think as a, as a reader and as a, as a, as a, someone who appreciates Franco films, it's like you can see kind of as he's describing catching the bug. And it's just so fascinating. It's just kind of like, cause he's, you know, he admits that in the article that, you know, he also wrote some unkind, you know, kind of like, Oh, well, first time I watched X film, I wrote a really bad review of it. Cause I didn't, I didn't like it. I didn't understand it. But then, you know, again, like, being able to put all these pieces together and and contextualize things in a in his you know work he came to understand it more and was able to talk about it and that and i think that's hence that quote about you know 
you have to see all of them to have seen one of them comes back is just this sort of a body of work that isn't so interrelated and yeah yeah i just i just think yeah i mean it we talk about you know being a fan of franco and how you know people who have caught the franco bug really catch it and you know they have to see more and it's you know they're always you know they're you know no matter how like sort of niche or discarded or or sort of even poorly reviewed some of his films are i know for me like every time there's a new jess franco blu-ray out i'm just like yay one i haven't seen i'm all for it even if it's not that great even if it doesn't have a great reputation i still want to see it franco himself like and going back to what you were just saying heather about you know how he made so many films i mean he was a compulsive filmmaker like he he was driven to do it all the time i mean he made films up until the t- basically the time that he died. He made films as long as he was physically able to, and just because he had to. And again, I think that's why he got bored of doing stuff because he was constantly having so many ideas and wanting to start new things that he was just kind of like, you know, if the steam was kind of running out on something, like he was just so hungry to do the next thing. He just had to move on to it. And he was, you know, filming multiple, you know, he would be working on multiple things at a, at a time. You know, he'd be like, you know, he was notorious for, you know, taking the money, taking the budget he was given for one film and then like doing a side film like and not really telling the actors kind of like oh here's some new lines here's a new scene we're working on and the, the actors are like what this doesn't make any sense and the story eh, just, just just go with it just go with it you know like so i mean he just it's like again it's like a surrealist sort of like artistic concept it's like you know the compulsion to like constantly do the thing and 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 create and it's it's just um again the sort of parallels between like franco as a filmmaker making films compulsively and we as viewers who compulsively watch them is an interesting dynamic exquisitely put and it's so true and i think that's you know whatever you know because i always think that there's a huge you know, or at least I hope huge. I always think there's an audience for, for filmmakers like Franco who are still very much new to like sort of cult film because it's like filmmakers like Jess give you even, even with something like even like, and I will revisit Mary Cookie. And that's the thing, like even, even with some of the stuff that you might not like, he is compelling enough creator to where you're open to return. Like I've never seen anything of his that just offended me. Honestly, the most offensive thing for me ever is going to be if the film's boring and it's just rote. And Jess Franco's not rote, I mean, by any stretch. And it's like there's always something there. There's even even in a film. I mean, and there's plenty of Jess Franco films I've saw seen and gone like that was terrible. Like I did not enjoy that very much. But there's always something. There's always like a quality or a shot or a scene or a piece of music that like oh, but I liked this. This was good. You know, like I always I feel like you know you're there's always something there to be enjoyed. And I, that, that I feel like is the most important thing. Even if you didn't, you know, like you watch six or seven films and go like, why am I still watching his films? Like, you know, I, I'm not getting on with this. I'm, you know, I'm not like, I don't love any of these, but then you think about it and you go like, Oh, but you know, this had this great scene or, Oh, Lena Romay looked great in this movie. You know, like there's always something there. It's like, sometimes people get so used to having a diet of one thing. And it's like, sometimes Sometimes you want something that you've never eaten before. You've want you want to yeah. Life is a veritable feast. Auntie Mame was right, and uh, and so yes. I mean, let's not starve. Like, like let's feast on these artists that give us something that we've never had before. And you know, and gosh, yeah. I mean, that's the thing because even with some of the films that he's kind of clearly half-assing, you're right. Like, there's always there's still some magic there and then when he's given it his all i mean this is by far one of my favorites of his if not one of just like my favorite period like this is a film i just i this is such a special film 
the one interesting piece of filmmaking in this, you know, I mentioned the sex scene between the stand-ins for, I guess, Carmen Z and, and Uncle Howard. And that was shot by another filmmaker. I'm curious about the opening because the, the opening credits themselves, the way that they end on this guy who then like turns and sees that he's on camera and then walks off very awkwardly. It's like, did somebody else shoot that or was just Franco having fun with here's this weird shot in my credits where I captured a person that didn't want to be in my movie. But of course they're probably shooting. Of course, there's multiple versions of these opening credits because of all the different titles. And you know, you always see that with like the freeze frame and the new title that's thrown in there, that kind of stuff. But yeah, this whole thing of, so when I understand what, like that scene that I was talking about, the one sex scene was shot by another filmmaker and whose name is escaping me right now. Uh, his name is uh, Pierre Carreau. Thank you. A Belgian so filmmaker. That was a way to add some titillation because the the original title, well, not the original title, but the Christine Prin- Princess of Eroticism title was not selling. So they were like, oh, well, we'll add some more sex. We'll call it A Virgin Among the Living Dead. It does that. And then what is it later on? I think the sex comes first, right? They really sexed it up even more and they added this extended sex scene. And I didn't catch all of it and there might even be more. But from what I remember, it was again, a body double for Christine with a mask on, but she's got the long hair and she basically has, what is it? A sword? And she's like, it's a wand, I think. A <laughs> wand? Oh, geez. And she's like, okay, you two have sex. Now you two. And then eventually they all come for her. And it's like, this is it's not bad. good. It's, it's really bad. bad. It's like a bad loop. So the production company, Eurocine, who, well, I think they deserve a lot of credit because I think in a lot of ways they allowed Jess Franco to, and, and often gave him, small budgets that they might be budget enough to do, you know, some, some really fantastic work, but they, they, I mean, they were, they were a small company that wanted to make money and they were an exploitation film company. You know, they did horror movies, they did sex films. Uh, you know, they, they, you know, they needed to make money off these movies. And, you know, if they had to tamper with them in order to get what they wanted out of them in order to get sold to the right markets, they were not above doing that. And they did it many, many times. The, the Lesseur, I think it was either the brothers or father and son. I forget now. Um, but so after Franco completed Night of the Shooting Stars, as you know, I guess you, if you want to refer to it as as the director's director's cut, if you will, of the film, they were like, it's funny to say this of a Jess Franco film. They're like, it doesn't have enough sex in it. It doesn't have enough sex. And even though Franco clearly like, you know, he's like, there's some naked ladies in this movie. Like, come on, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, I, every I, I time Christina sleeps, she's in the nude and she sleeps a lot. Yeah. Carmen Zay is rolling around half dressed. I mean, come on, I'm giving you what you want, but they decided it was not enough of what they wanted. And especially since we're talking about kind of like in France, like this was just before, like, as they were sort of rolling into the advent of like full, like al- allowing X films. Um, to be released. So like the ante was starting to be upped, um, in terms of like sexual content. And so anyway, they were long story short. They, they said, you know, this is not, this is not enough sex. So we're going to bring in this Pierre Carew guy to shoot some scenes. So I think the scenes that Carew added are, as you refer to the, the scene with Carmen Zay and, and Uncle Howard 
where they're you, you can see it's clearly not them and there's there's sort of two versions of this. i think in the in the sort of director's cut of this there's it's very brief. Like Christina is like listening. She hears a fight, which there's some really funny dialogue. I didn't notice this until like after several watches, like there's some funny dialogue that she overhears between the two of them. That's about like being dead. <laughs> and it's just, just more hints about like, you know, kind of like, Oh, you're just like a, you know, you're like a dead fish or I can't remember exactly what they say, but there is some funny back and forth of fighting between the two of, of, of those characters about, about death. And then you go to the scene where it's just like this sort of weird, like clearly not them sort of planted sex scene. And it, there's like, there's two versions of the scene. There's like a short version and there's like a, like a longer drawn out, more explicit version of the scene. And then, um, uh, there's the scene you're referring to, which got thankfully like cut out of most floating around versions of this film, which is stars another Franco regular out. Her name is Alice Arnaud and she's the one with the mask on. And it's got people who have nothing to do with the film. Like everyone hates this. Like, you know, there's an extra on the DVD with Alain Petit saying like, it's horrible. He's like, I made my own version of, I made my own edit of this film. And I just, that was the first thing I got rid of was this terrible, like tacked on footage. And then also there's a scene, which is kind of interesting to talk about which is the scene in the barn where Christina comes in and the father is, is hanging and they have this sort of like tender moment. And basically the father is like kind of presents himself as like, you know, irredeemable and basically says, Christina, you're doomed. You know, you shouldn't have followed me. It was really the queen of the night doing the talking and, you know, basically, you know, kind of just like sort of, you know, saying that, you know, this is your fate, you know, you're, you're doomed. And then the family comes in or I think it's Basilio, Uncle Howard, and Aunt Abba. Is it Aunt Abba? Yeah, it's, yeah, maybe it's the three of them. And they sort of pin her down. And in the sort of the Franco version, you don't really see what happens. I mean, it's any th- number of things could suggest it, like be suggested, like, you know, they sexually attack her. They cannibalize her. They're, they, they're vampires and they're like draining her blood. Like we don't see it. But in this sort of tacked on version, it's more explicitly like, a sexual assault it's more explicitly like a rape you know someone uncle howard but is it clearly a stand like the whole scene is just not any of the original characters you know pulls his pants down and gets on top of her and you know it's much more explicit and bad <laughs> it's not fair i mean the, the the sort of the suggestion of vampirism and cannibalism is you know and i think and i think what franco was trying to say there and why this tacked on footage like is just wrong is that like i think franco is sort of symbolically suggesting a consumption like you know like you know that's why he doesn't show exactly what happens it's like she's being consumed but in a you know he's not going to sort of say in what way that's up to us as the viewer to sort of imagine because then it goes to the scene where she's basically like i think being sacrificed you know in that sort of circle of candles by the queen of the night so it's just kind of like like basically like the it's kind of the 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 ghost her ghost family is like kind of like consuming her and like pulling her in and then ultimately she's sacrificed and then the redemption comes at the end where she's goes into the pond but yeah that's another bit of like the tacked on footage so those are like the three of the non-roland of the of the what was added by in like the early 70s like around the time the film was being you know they were ready to like distribute it or trying to distribute it like those were the things by i think the footage by pierre carreau that were added so that and then that became, you know, Christina, Princess of Eroticism, like all this like tacked on, like sort of extra sex and sex related like footage, which doesn't work at all. <laughs> and just, you know, wasn't wasn't true to Franco's vision, quite frankly. Now the best part though is that I think Stephen Thrower in his chapter and murderous passions on it, it makes a joke about how like what 
It's funny that, you know, I don't know how she's a princess of eroticism when she's a virgin. Exactly. (laughs) It's totally antithetical (laughs) to like the whole, you know, the whole message. It's just, it's just so dumb. And even I think Franco, I can't remember if this is, this may be in the interview with him from the, from the extras on the Kino Larber Blu-ray, but basically like he starts talking about the film and, and I think he actually talks about how, how much he likes the film in the version that once people finally put, put the pieces together and took the wrong pieces out that he actually likes the film, but he sort of goes, my film that was titled Christina Princess of Eroticism. And he kind of like rolls his eyes, like, you know, kind of like, yeah, how terrible, like, you know, obviously like he knows, like, you know, yeah, like I had nothing to do with that. And, you know. What's ironic that Virgin Among the Living Dead is actually a pretty good title for this, but then they had to add more Living Dead later on. (laughs) Way later on. (laughs) I liked my Living Dead, but then it's like, no, no, yeah, we're going to add a whole other. And with that, I did see some of that footage, and they started pretty early, which is smart that they do that, but... It just doesn't fit. It doesn't work for me whatsoever. The the closest that it gets is when the family and everybody else is walking into the pond at the end. It's like, okay, well, they're walking. They're kind of shuffling, like almost like a Romero zombie type of thing. And those zombies that I saw that Jean Roland shot, they're pretty slow moving as well. But they just they just don't fit. They don't work. Uh, you know, what well, you know about the timeline of this. But basically, it was like... Eurocine again, the company that that um, produced the film, you know, years later. So this is like 1981. You know, once the Italian, like once the you know Romero became popular and like the zombie, the Italian zombie craze was like in full swing. Basically, Eurocine was like, oh hey, we have a zombie film, but we got to zombie it up a little bit more. Like Jean Roland, what can you do? Jean Roland, you just like you know came off of Zombie Lake, which is a terrible movie, but it made Eurocine a lot of money. So they were very keen to like exploit, you know, kind of like, okay, well, you clearly know how to do zombies. So we need you to give us some more zombies. So what Roland was told about what Eurocine wanted was un- is unclear. Like I- I've read in some sources that, you know, basically he was just kind of like very vaguely told, like, here's the story. But I think if you look at the footage, you know, he must have been given specific prompts like, okay, we need a woman in a white nightgown with long hair that covers her face. So, you know, we can't, we can integrate it into the footage. You know, we need some zombies. We need a circle of candles. We need a a woman in black who kind of is a queen of the night, you know, like, I think he must've been given some of these prompts and, and, and Roland said apparently that he, he never saw Franco's film and Franco himself was also very kind of like, like, you know, I think in that same interview I just referred to with Franco, like, you know, basically says, oh, you know, I, I know who did the footage. I'm not going to name him because he was just doing a job. We all need to eat, et cetera, et cetera. I've watched it a few times and tried to, as a fan of Roland, you know, like kind of go, okay, well, what, can we see that Roland was really like trying to make an effort, an artistic effort here? And I mean, it doesn't, it, taken on its own, it's not like, it's not like badly shot. But it, you know, he didn't see the original work. He doesn't know how it fits in. He was basically just told, can you film us some zombies doing this, that, and the other and have these elements? And they just threw it in without, you know, like, you know, Roland was just, you know, just was doing what he was told, basically. So I don't think Roland, and not to say, you know, anyone is necessarily like blaming him for like these horrible, you know, he didn't, it wasn't his idea to put them in. He was just the gun for hire. Absolutely doesn't work. It was just done to cash in on, zombie movies at the time and it's unfortunate that 
at least my understanding is, and I haven't seen every version of this movie by any means. Like I know there's like once home video happened, like so many versions of this movie. Like I can't even keep track of how many, like, you know, like how many versions, like different, slightly different cuts there are of this. But, you know, throughout the eighties, basically the legacy, you know, this, this is how this movie was known. And like, so no one could really like, you know, people could watch it. And I suppose, I suppose if they had a sensitivity to like, franco's talent they could go oh yeah there's stuff there but yeah this zombie stuff like yeah it doesn't really work it's pretty bad it's pretty clearly tacked on but then like you know again in the like once i think i can't remember if it was the 90s or the early 2000s when this when someone some video company decided like okay we know what this was supposed to be and we're going to take out the zombie stuff we're going to take out the the christina princess of eroticism with the woman waving a wand stuff and go and just show you what Franco you know, really wanted you to see from the very beginning that that was when, you know, it became a sort of like, okay, like this is an important film in his canon. Like I said, it's just unfortunate that for so many years that was, I mean, and this is the, I think the case with a number of Franco films because of any number of reasons like censorship or production interference, you know, um, any number of things like see butchered versions of his films and that was all you could get so of course he was you know maligned by a lot of people because they weren't really seeing the what franco was really capable of it's like gosh because you think like a dream team you know for us like for for our tribe is roland and franco even though i mean i mean they have two different pulses but they're so like like we said you know if you love one there's the odds of loving the other are pretty good but yeah, it's, it's not, it's not great. It's not the worst I've seen. Um, there is a fabulous goth lady with a torch. I did like her. <laughs> I loved, I did love yeah. her who tries to apply burns. Poor Christina. With yeah. Her. Yeah. Know. And pours blood uh, on it. Like, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I don't, I don't really understand what's going on. Like, yeah, I was like, huh? But, uh, yes, I love that Franco was like kind of protective of Sean in that, in that interview. I thought that was so sweet. That made me happy. Cause I, yeah, obviously like, because I think historically these directors have been somewhat cagey when asked about each other in interviews, like Borovchik, for instance, like, you know, did strongly disliked being compared to like Franco and Roland and like, you know, like, like some of these directors, like, Heather, you were talking about Immoral Tales, the book Immoral Tales, that like so many of us who love these films, like it's like the Bible for us. It's even now, like so many years after it's, you know, almost 30 years, probably after its publication, it's still an incredible resource. And some of the first one of the first places that some of these directors were were being explored and and looked at as a sort of like, you know, um, kind of a, a genre of sorts. I mean, yeah, we can call it Eurocult, but what does that really mean? And then, you know, these directors all kind of went, we're nothing like each other. Like, what do you mean? Like this, you know, like, you know, they, I think they were all sort of a bit like, huh, I don't want to be compared to that guy, which is just so weird for me. Cause it's like, I mean, you know, so, you know, and again, not, not everybody loves all the same films of the director, but I mean, there is a sort of, you know, I, I think if you're inclined to like one, you're inclined to like the other, even if not all the films, at least some of them or appreciate the aesthetic of like Roland, Borovchik, Franco, mm-hmm. Loraz, forget now who else gets mentioned. You know, I think Benza is it Benazaraf, yeah. Benazaraf, yeah. Yeah. Well, and especially cuz all of these are all guys that I think I mean, and we know this now, but like for a long time like trying to tell people like these are artists. These aren't just like, you know, smut peddlers or, you know, just like schlocky. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like we, you know, I love camp, 
but these are these are artists like this is art house that got a lot of times sold and marketed as grindhouse or exploitation or sexploitation because of you know because of money and because they're basically kind of having to work in a working class budget situation too you know and that's because i've always felt like you know that whatever like whatever situation a film gets distributed to and through is usually how it ends up kind of marking how the film is going to be taken in critically, um, which is fucked up. It's classism. And, um, you know, and it kind of makes me sad. I get it with Barab, because God, I love Barabchuk as we, as I think, again, as we all do, but like, you know, it's like, man, no, you guys are all, you're all people that should have been, you know, treated a lot better as artists when you were still here. Yeah, and but at least at least now at least now we can know that's cool thing about doing the show mike is you're giving you're giving us a chance to you know kind of at least write a little bit of wrongs with the with film history and give some justice to it to a truly a truly great work this isn't just a great like you know horror film this is this is great cinema we are going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show right after these brief messages classic is a film journey to the east a curated streaming service offering the best of contemporary and classic cinema from Eastern Europe and Asia. Using coupon code MIKE50, you can get Classic-y membership for just $5.50 a month, giving you the opportunity to sample award-winning films, documentaries, silent masterpieces, classic comedies, and more. You could also get access to the Classic-y journal, exclusive cast and director interviews, video essays, and watch lists, visit klassiki.online and sign up now to start your adventure in film. right we are moving from jessica's request to a whole other request month with our discussion of takeshi katano's sonatine until then i want to thank my co-host jessica and heather so heather what's keeping you busy life love and rock and roll as well as writing because i it's not up yet but hopefully by the time this goes to air i just recently wrote a piece on lucio fulci's house by the cemetery for arrow's website which i'm very excited and that's a film I love, Chris Lucho, speaking of great European cult directors. I also, this is so stoked to announce, I was very lucky to get invited to be a part of Vinegar Syndrome's upcoming release of Michael Finlay's proto-slasher art house meets grindhouse flesh trilogy. Uh, I do three commentary tracks. There's also a great booklet that has has an essay I wrote as well as essays by Lisa Petrucci, our psychotronic goddess of something weird video. 
got to sneak preview her essay and it's freaking amazing. And of course, Liz Perchell, who's, who's also wonderful. Um, so I'm very stoked about that. Michael Finlay is a auteur near and dear to my, my dark little heart. Um, and on the podcast front, you can listen to me with my audiophile brothers, Father Malone and HP over at Noise Junkies. We recently just did an episode on deep cuts for the Halloween season. And of course, Noise Junkies is part of the Weirding Way Media family, which also has Projection Booth, as well as Culture Cast for Chris Stashie, which I, we recently just talked about Eyes of Fire, the Avery Crounce's brilliant folk horror film and so yeah, and any other sundries, you can find me at my link tree, linktree.com forward slash Mondo Heather. And Jessica, how about yourself? What are you working on these days? Not anything nearly as interesting or prolific as Heather is. <laughs> uh, I have been working on a piece on Franco for a while now that just some ideas I've been kicking around. So I'm really hoping, especially like coming out of this conversation, that I can really sort of like put some of that together and actually like put it out into the world. I post pretty fl- prolifically on my my Instagram account where I do a, post a lot of uh, symbolist art and like sort of occult art, esoteric art, other things. And it's that is uh, La Belle Otero, la.bell.otero at Instagram. And you can follow me there if you're interested in seeing kind of what someone who likes films like this uh, interests are in art. Well, thank you so much, ladies, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, please check out some of the other shows that I work on. Like Heather said, they are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Goodbye, daughter. Don't stay here. The curse.